So, so far in Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus do some pretty amazing things, right? I mean, it's, uh, earlier we saw Jesus muzzle a storm with just the word of his mouth. We've seen him conquer an army of demons. He's healed people who have been suffering with chronic illnesses. We've seen him repair lame and paralyzed bodies. We've seen him cleanse the lepers when nobody would even come close to them. Last week, we even saw a little girl be brought back from the dead. In today's passage, as Leanna was reading, we see Jesus feed the multitudes, literally thousands of people with the equivalent of a little boy's lunchable. Given all these miracles and our fascination with Marvel comics and superheroes, it could be tempting to equate Jesus as like the superhero of the Bible, who comes to our aid in times of distress to slay the dragon and save us from the pit of hell. And there's certainly truth to that, right? But if we walk away from Mark with simply a superhero Jesus, we will have missed him. I don't know if you know, but this weekend, uh, Justice League opens up in theaters. Anybody already went out to see it? I knew you guys would have counting on it. All right. It's slotted to be one of the biggest and most expensive superhero movies of all time. I mean, you watch the trailer. It's like every three seconds, there's an explosion. It looks awesome. Now, uh, in this USA Today article, Ben Affleck, kind of hometown guy who uh, plays Batman, listen to what he said. It just floored me. He said, we are certainly in need of heroes in 2017. There's a lot of stuff going on in the world from natural to man-made disasters, and it's really scary. I mean, if you look at the headlines just from the last 90 days, it's like you could you go, yeah, we do need a superhero. And he said, part of the appeal of this genre is wish fulfillment. And listen to what he said. Wouldn't it be nice if there was somebody who can save us from all of this, save us from ourselves, save us from the consequences of our actions, and save us from people who are evil? See, a superhero can pull you out of a jam. A superhero can get you out of a tight spot and even save you from a close encounter from an untimely death, right? That's what they're all about. But there are some things that a superhero cannot do. A superhero cannot fill the longing of the heart. See, every human heart longs, just like Ben Affleck said it, to save us from ourselves, to save us from the consequences of our actions and to deliver us from evil. But that requires much more than a superhero. It requires a savior. And so this morning, as we look at the mass feedings of, of Jesus and Mark, we need to see Jesus as more than just a mere miracle worker, more than a superhero. He is the one who not only feeds us and gets us out of a jam, but he's the one who can nourish our souls with the feast that only he can provide. As we work through our text this morning, there's just two points I want to make today, and we'll summarize those kind of like this. We'll see first the feast that Jesus provides, and then we'll see the famine without him. So we got the feast and the famine. So look with me as we start in verse 30, as Leanna read for us. It says this, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Okay, so just a bit of context if you haven't been tracking with us in Mark. 
the disciples had just been sent out by Jesus to go to the various villages and surrounding, the surrounding area in Galilee to minister and to preach the word of God. And did you notice here that Mark, when it says that they're reporting to Jesus what they've done, Mark gives no space to, uh, to, the, to the results of their ministry efforts. It's like Mark is saying to them and to us, results aren't what make you a disciple. There are no quotas in the kingdom of God. You're not on his sales team as a disciple. See, what makes you a disciple is your attachment to Jesus. And everything else flows from that. Doing for Jesus is the fruit, but being with Jesus is the root that produces that kind of fruit. So the disciples had been faithful. They went out as Jesus had told them to do. They worked hard and they came back and now they're reporting to Jesus. And there's this theme that we've been seeing over and over throughout Mark's gospel that being with Jesus always precedes doing for him. Your mission lived out through you, your mission for Jesus is only possible because of your fellowship with Jesus. And I don't know about you, but as a doer, as a type A person, I need to be constantly reminded of that, that he, my approval, my standing, his love for me is not determined by what I do for him, what I, uh, results I produce for him, that he loves me because he loves me. He's decided to put his great affection and to call us his sons and daughters, and that's the basis for our love, and everything flows from that. Now, with the disciples, we don't know how long exactly that they were sent out on this mission, but we know that it was at least several weeks when they were sent out. He was telling them about lodging and, 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 and finding food and all that kind of stuff. So we get this idea that they're going to be out for a while, and it could have even been months. And when they get back, you just know that look when you see someone and they're exhausted, right? You can just tell, man, they need a rest. And so they come to Jesus, they need a break, and he says, hey, let's get out of here. Let's go on a little spiritual retreat, just you and me, and let's talk and be restored. It's been so busy when they got back. It says that so many people were coming and going that they literally had no time to eat. And I don't know about you, but if I go a long time without food, I start to get hangry. Anybody else? I mean, I love you all, but if I don't get food, it goes bad, Right? So I'm just pumped that like, okay, it's time for those guys to get away. They're going on a retreat to be restored. Now let's pick it up in verse 33. It says, many were, uh, now, now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Okay, so their retreat gets kiboshed, Right? It's like they see them leaving, and they're like, oh, wait. And they start like hustling along with them to see where it is that they're going. And the crowds run on foot to meet them. And so you got to wonder, what is going on in the disciples' mind and heart right now? Right? They're expecting this retreat, some alone time with Jesus. Maybe they'll get a meal at some point. It's vacation, right? Time to be debrief and be filled up. And when they get there, there's thousands of people on the shoreline waiting for them. You've got to be kidding me, right? It makes me think about the evening time, and I can say this now because my boys aren't in here. It's like at the end of the day, you know, I get home from work, and I, and I, man, I lean in for that second shift. It's like, let's get mealtime done. Let's love on the kids. Let's get bedtime. Let's do that. But there comes a point when I'm ready to be done. 
I'm ready to go off the clock as a dad, put my dad hat down, and just get some relaxation, right? Get a snack in hand, maybe get a beverage, pull up a show, hang out with Andy, and just get some alone time. And then it never fails. You see these beady little eyes creep down the stairs, poke their head around the corner, and they're wide-eyed and bushy-tailed like, hey, what are you guys watching? What are you guys, what are you, what are you doing? You know, it's they've got like this FOMO, you know, fear of missing out. They want to know what's going on. And I'm like, no, back to bed. This is my time. I've put in my hours, right? That's what the disciples are going through. This is an unplanned event on the, on the, on the stop. It's an interruption. And what you need to realize is the disciples aren't the only ones with expectations as they're going into, uh, as they're pulling up on the shore. You see, the crowd had expectations as well. And there's all these little clues from the text and from history that this crowd is actually looking to make Jesus the leader of their revolution. Let me explain that. You see, they've been watching Jesus for a long time, and they know he's got power, he's got charisma, he's this great leader, and they know they, haven't got, they don't have Jesus quite figured out, but they know there's something different about them, and they're out in this desolate area uh, where militia people kind of like to go. They're out in the hill country, okay? And they're out in this remote and rural region, and these are like all the freedom fighters and the Minutemen kind of all gathered the, uh, together, and they're looking at Jesus like maybe he'll be our leader, and historically, we know that there were multiple attempts from these ragtag groups to overthrow Rome. They wanted to get Jerusalem back, bring Israel back under uh, their rule and uh, control, and not have this occupying um, uh, foreign government. Later, we're going to find out that there's 5,000 men, which doesn't speak to the, to the number of women and children um, historians estimate there's probably 15,000 people kind of gathered out in this um, remote area. And if all those little hints aren't enough, um, John's gospel, who's writing about this same uh, mir- miraculous event, when he closes it out, he says this, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So what Mark kind of leaves implicit, John makes explicit and says, this group is ready to make Jesus their king and the leader of their revolution. Now Mark says that when Jesus looked at him, he saw they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now before you go all like lammy on me and like think about Jesus holding these sheep, I want you to realize that this is very vivid imagery used all throughout the Old Testament to speak about the leadership of Israel, the ones who are supposed to uh, lead, God, lead God's people. So there's passages that speak about Israel broken and desperate without a leader. In fact, when uh, Moses is, is about to go to the way of the earth, he's uh, praying to God and he says, Lord, who, this is in Numbers 27, 17, if you're taking notes, who shall go out before them and come in before them? Who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd? Speaking about the lack of godly leadership, God gives us indictment on these so-called leaders of Israel. There's one in Zechariah 10:2 that says, therefore, the people wander like sheep. They're afflicted for lack of a shepherd. The prophet uh, Ezekiel makes an even uh, heavier indictment. Look what he says. Uh, This is Ezekiel uh, chapter 34. Ezekiel saying that the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who've been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? 
You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. And so they're scattered because there was no shepherd. They became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth with none to search or to seek for them. See, when Jesus sees this group, it's like all that Old Testament background is just floating around in his head. And he's like, these are like sheep without a shepherd. They've got nobody to lead them, nobody to care for them. They're looking for a leader. The crowds are standing on the shoreline, leaderless, implicitly asking as Jesus is coming up, who will lead us? Who will tell us who we are? Who will go before us to deliver us from evil? Who will make us whole as a nation again? Because they're done with Rome. They're done with the oppression. They're ready for a result. See, they're looking for a hero. And Mark tells us that Jesus looked on them and had compassion. This word compassion is a fun Greek word. It's fun to say it's splagnizomai. And it's the word for, it comes from the word that means guts and innards. What he's saying is that the, the compassion that Jesus has, goes so, it goes down to the depths of his soul. It's, a gut, it's one of those kinds of emotions that's not just like uh, in your head. It, it, it takes over your whole body. When Jesus sees them, his whole body, mind, heart, soul, spirit, all of it together is moved with compassion. See, this is not just like warm fuzzies or, hey, man, my thoughts and prayers go out to you. Jesus has moved in his body for these people. And think about it. He's hungry too. He hasn't had a meal. He's tired. He needs a break, and he can't seem to get one. But instead of being frustrated and spent, he has compassion. Compassion. So Mark tells us that he begins to teach them. He begins teaching them. Probably not what they expected, right? They see Jesus come up. He says, great leader, and he says, okay, hey, sit down. I've got some things to say. All right, all right, let's hear you, Jesus. And he begins to teach him about the kingdom of God. Earlier in Mark's gospel, he tells us what, Mark, what, what Jesus was always teaching and preaching about. Repent, turn away from sin. The kingdom of God is at hand. Believe in the gospel. You see, their impulses to be free are right on. Everybody knows that we shouldn't be bound and shackled. But what Jesus is telling him is your impulses for freedom and deliverance don't go deep enough. You want deliverance from political oppression, but there's a kind of oppression in your souls that you haven't yet explored. He starts teaching about a bondage and oppression that's far worse than the Roman Empire. You see, it's a kind of oppression that doesn't just occupy Jerusalem. It occupies every human heart. And so he starts teaching him about sin and its carnage, and the collateral damage that it has. And he starts talking about how God is actively working to cleanse and heal the world. And he tells them that forgiveness and deliverance is offered to any who would turn from sin and, and, and run to the Lord, that they would just believe in him. Now look with me at verse 35. So he's teaching. 
And and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages so that they can buy themselves something to eat. Verse 37, But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? See, Jesus is teaching and kind of pass through lunch, and afternoon is giving way to evening, and it's starting to get close to dinner time. You can almost imagine the disciples slip Jesus a note. Hey, everybody's getting hungry. It's getting late. Time to wrap it up, right? It's like cueing the music, okay? You can kind of read the lines, right, between the lines and see their heart toward the people. Hey, we didn't invite them. They disrupted our plans. They've hijacked our retreat, And we've been working for days now without rest. We're not responsible for all these people. They should have thought ahead. They should take care of themselves. Where's their food? Why aren't they feeding us? But in that moment, Jesus makes them their responsibility when he tells them, hey, that's a good point. They are hungry. You give them something to eat. Well, now their reaction is probably a lot like ours, right? They begin to panic and go, Okay, not only do we not have like supplies for all that, but even if we had that kind of money, there's no way we could even go into the village, buy all that, bring that food in, and start feeding all these people. It's as if Jesus has deliberately created the situation where the people must be fed and put the responsibility on the disciples to see how they're going to react. He could have ended the, 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 the teaching way before mealtime and just dismissed the crowds. See, his disciples have to grow into their role as apostles. There's going to come a day when Jesus isn't physically with them. And it's going to be on them to bring forth the gospel throughout the world. See, they're his plan A, and there's no plan B. And so he's putting them in these situations where they have to learn how to trust and rely on Jesus. Look with me at verse 38. And he said to them, so how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. And so then he commanded everyone to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. You see, the disciples are worried about what they don't have. And Jesus is saying, well, what do we have? They have five loaves and two fish. Jesus has them sit down. And, the good, and you just see this good shepherd gathering up his people and getting ready to lead them to pasture. Verse 41. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. He broke the loaves, gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. And immediately after the supper, he took his disciples and got them in a boat. And uh, they went to the other side to Bethsaida while he stayed behind and dismissed the crowd. You see, as as Jesus gathers up the people, he serves as the host of this meal. He's like a Jewish dad gathering the the children around the table. And he takes the bread and the fish and he gives a thanks and he blesses it. The common table prayer at that time would have gone something like this. Praise be to you, O Lord, our God, King of the world, who makes bread come forth from the earth. And who provides for all that you have created. 
And as he says this blessing, he's breaking the bread and he's giving it to the disciples as they go and give it to the people. What I love is that Mark doesn't tell us how it happened. Like the, 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 the engineer and scientist in me is like, man, how did it happen? Like what was like metaphysically going on as this bread and the salted fish is just over and again, just getting multiplied. Disciples coming back and he's got more for them. And they're thinking, no way, he's got more. I've just fed a hundred people, but they come back and there's still more for him. And at the end of the, the meal, they gather up all the leftovers and they have even more than they started with. But it's like Mark just goes on. It's like, man, he just did it. I don't know. You see, in every miracle that we've come to, what we're seeing is a reverse of the curse. It's a glimpse into the world as it once was and as it should be, and friends, hear me, as it will one day be. Back in the garden, God had provided abundantly for his children. There was food of every kind, and cultivation and work would have been enjoyable and without resistance. But now on this side of the garden, what's happening? Right? Food is a constant problem. We have to eat. Like if this sermon goes long, you're going to be looking down and going like, I'm getting hungry. We have to work to get it. And the work is hard, isn't it? And now they're in this desolate place where there's no food. And the very reality of a place on earth that's desolate is a mark of the curse itself where barrenness and desolation reign. Jesus steps into this desolate place and he brings life. He takes the inadequate and he makes it adequate. He takes the meager and he turns it into abundance. He takes the empty and he fills it up. He takes the barren and brings provision. He's giving them a glimpse into the kingdom of God and a world fully restored where no one is hungry and there's abundant provision. He's showing them a glimpse where militant uh, militia, they drop their weapons and they gather up together to have a picnic. They're getting a taste of the king's feast. That's what all these miracles have been about. He heals the sick. Why? Because in God's kingdom, there is no sickness. He restores the lame because in God's kingdom, there is no paralysis. He calms the storm because in God's kingdom, there is no natural disasters. He raises the dead because in the kingdom of God, death doesn't belong. See, miracles are not these special acts where Jesus does some kind of magic trick. He's not just suspending the natural order. In fact, it's the other way around. The brokenness is unnatural. The, the, the healing is what's actually natural. Miracles are these glimpses into the world as it was supposed to be. Sin has broken the world and distorted everything. And these miracles are like these little windows, these glimpses in to God's kingdom where we get to come and peek inside and go, this is what it's going to be like. When it's all said and done, this is the world as it was meant to be. I love that line where it says, everybody ate and was satisfied. And not only are they satisfied, but they're sent home with a doggy bag. There's leftovers. Take some home with you. It's here that the disciples learn Jesus is going to call them regularly to the impossible. They're going to be unqualified. They're going to be inadequate to do the work alone. And that's exactly how God works. All of us are unqualified. None of us have abundant provision in and of ourselves. 
but he takes our inadequacies and he makes them adequate. And when, that, when God is working powerfully through you, the result is this. Everyone gets to eat and everybody is satisfied. See, the good shepherd has compassion on his sheep and he provides not just a meal for his people, but he provides hope that life is found in him, not in a mere revolution. He's saying if they'll eat the bread of his teaching, if they'll believe, they'll find life and hope that goes beyond all of their previous expectations. That's what the king's feast is all about. Now let's look at point two, the famine. Okay, we're going to jump. We're going to skip right over chapter 7, and we're going to be in chapter 8. Now, it's not because chapter 7 is not important. We're going to cover that next week. But the way Mark kind of organized his gospel, we're going to get the end of this uh, of these mass feedings in chapter 8. And there's going to be this conversation that Jesus has with the disciples that's going to um, give us some, um, some insight as to how we should see um, these mass um, feeding miracles. So in chapter 8, verses 1 through 10, I'm just going to kind of summarize those. We have another miracle feeding. Now, in case you think maybe Mark just forgot that he already wrote it and just wrote it again, that's not what's going on. What this is, is it's another one. In fact, John tells us Jesus did so many things that we, couldn't, we don't have enough paper in the world to write it all down. It could be that this was something that happened all the time. But Mark gives us another episode. It's very similar. Uh, it, it happens in a different region. It's in the Decapolis, where this one was in Galilee, uh, a predominantly uh, Jewish region. The second one happens in this um, Gentile region. In this episode, in, in Mark chapter 8, it's roughly 4,000 people. Uh, the people have been with Jesus for three days, and they've had nothing to eat. But again, Jesus is moved with compassion and says, we need to feed everyone here because the people have come from far away, and no one has any more food. And the disciples ask Jesus in Mark chapter 8, where in this remote place can we get enough bread to satisfy them? Now, it's not the disciples forgot what happened last time, but maybe it's the fact that they don't want to presume upon Jesus for another miracle, right? He's not a miracle vending machine. You can't just walk up to Jesus, throw in some quarters, and boom, get your miracle. But it's the same scenario. The disciples are asked to feed these people once again, and they're looking around going, okay, like, Jesus, like, are you going to do this thing again, or, or do we got to work something out? Like, what's going on? Whatever the case, they bring to Jesus their meager provisions, and Jesus takes the seven loaves and a few fish, and he does it again. He takes it, breaks it, he gives thanks, and he gives it to the disciples, and they feed the people. And Mark tells us again, everybody ate, and was satisfied, and there were plenty of leftovers. Now it's on the heels of this thing happening that he has a conversation and a confrontation with the Pharisees. We'll have the words on the screen. Look with me at verse 11. Uh, this is Mark 8, verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, what does this, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. So after these two mass feedings, the, the Pharisees come and confront Jesus. And everything about the way that Mark words this is antagonistic. They oppose him. They argue with him. They're looking to discredit him. In fact, the words that Mark uses are words that um, are used of militaries that are going out to battle. Mark portrays them as this militant band coming with an agenda. But there's something different about this group. 
The last time we saw uh, militia, they were like sheep without a shepherd. This group aren't sheep without a shepherd. They have a shepherd. They have their agenda. They're not looking for another. They're coming with demands, specifically demands for a sign so that they can prove that he's actually from God. Now, on the surface, I want to tell you, um, asking for a sign is not inherently sinful. In fact, in Jewish culture, it was actually pretty common for uh, the prophets uh, to give a sign so that they could authenticate the fact that they were actually sent from God. This, this uh, eliminates, you know, a bunch of uh, yahoos coming around going, oh yeah, I'm from God, and being able to lead people into um, uh, leading people astray. The problem is that Jesus has been doing all these things. He has been giving all these signs. There's plenty of evidence if they would just look around and see what's going on. He's been doing all these things, and the religious leaders have seen them, and yet they still don't believe. In fact, when they see him doing things, they accuse him of doing it under the power of Satan, right? They're not coming with humility and faith, seeking understanding. They're coming as hardline doubters, seeking to validate their unbelief. You see, there's a difference between skepticism and cynicism. A skeptic has doubts, and it's open to exploring them. And so if you're a skeptic and you're like, I'm, I'm still trying to figure all this out, you are welcome here. We're glad that you're here. This is a safe place for you to explore Christianity and the claims of Christ. But a cynic already has their mind and their heart made up. You ever had these conversations, right? It's like you, you quickly realize you're not actually interested in a conversation, right? You're not willing to be moved. And so it really doesn't matter what I say And so to them, Jesus doesn't offer any signs. He's not going to offer signs to convince spectators who already have their mind made up. His entire ministry, both the teaching and the miracles, were done as acts of love to people in need. For those with humility and openness, they saw Jesus for who he was, and they didn't need any further proof. The miracles that Jesus performed have not convinced this religious leadership. And so they're continuing to press Jesus for a sign from heaven. He's not a miracle worker. He's not a showboater. He's not just out doing these magic tricks. He sees need and he moves with compassion to meet those needs. What they don't realize is that, all, that the signs and miracles that Jesus has been doing were never meant to replace faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, as the writer of Hebrews says. But this group has their mind made up and their motives are disingenuous and entitled. They come demanding Jesus. So here's a stone cold truth of the gospel. It's one of the, it's one of the pain lines that we have to cross this morning. The gospel will remain hidden from unbelief. If you have your heart set on unbelief, you're never gonna see Jesus. It's just one of those principles laid out in the scriptures, and we see it here today. This group of Pharisees, instead of receiving the blessing of the feedings, they get nothing. Instead of a sign, they get a sigh from Jesus and a clear no. Where this previous group experienced the feeding at the king's feast, now the Pharisees experience a famine, and they get nothing. Look at me at verse 13. So Jesus left them, got in the boat again, and went to the other side. So he's in this boat with his disciples. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, 
Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Okay, so picture this. Jesus is in the boat with the disciples, and he's just left this hard conversation with the Pharisees, right? And he's like, man, that was a, there's a teachable moment here. I want to make sure that they realize like, what's going on in their heart. Why it is that they can't see me? And I'm thinking, man, finally. Finally, Jesus is in the boat. He's away from the crowds. He's going to get with his guys. He can teach them. They can get in the boat. Maybe he'll even get a break and get a, a nap in. This is a group of guys who knows him and understands him. And Mark gives us this comment from, uh, from a narrator's perspective. He says, to him, he says to us, as we're reading it, that they forgot the bread, okay? So imagine they're in this boat. He's just had this hard conversation. He wants to teach his disciples. And he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And immediately the disciples are like, oh, leaven, yeast, bread. We forgot the bread. Oh, my gosh. There's pl- there was like plenty of leftovers. You ever gone to a restaurant and like you had too much and you get like a, a leftovers and they put it in a little bag and you just leave the restaurant and leave it there on the table. You get home the next day, you're looking through the fridge and you realize, I left it at the restaurant. That's what they've done. They've left the leftovers back on the other side of the lake. And what do they start doing? They start pointing fingers at me. Man, was you, you were supposed to get the bread. Man, no, it was you. No, I thought, I thought Peter was going to do it. And they start arguing with each other about the bread. Nobody's listening to Jesus whatsoever. Nobody's thinking, hey, we've got a guy in the boat who can make one bread feed thousands of people, right? Jesus wants to catch up with his disciples on, 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 on the hard hearts of the Pharisees. What has corrupted them? And they're sitting here arguing about bread. Look at verse 16. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full were, were left over? And they said to them, 12. And what about the time when I took the seven and fed 4,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? See, as soon as Jesus mentions leaven, the disciples realize they forgot the bread with all the name pointing going on. See, yeast is a powerful metaphor that Jesus was about to teach them. You see, what happens when you get yeast in a lump of bread is it starts to work its way through the dough. And slowly but surely, what happens? Without all this noise, without all this ruckus, it influences and changes the dough, right? And it starts to rise. And Jesus was starting to tell them, man, there's this kind of yeast that can creep into your heart and begin to corrupt your soul. And what happens when your food supply is corrupt? You, ex- you can't eat, right? And you experience famine. You see, they've just experienced the king's feast, and he wants to teach them, man, there's a spiritual kind of famine, but they're missing it completely as they're arguing about bread. And the irony is thick, Right? He's trying to teach them about corruption and missing it, and they're actively missing it in that very moment. See, they don't get it. It doesn't matter who forgot the bread. They're with Jesus. He can provide for their every need without question, and and they will be satisfied just like he fed the multitudes. Now, it's interesting when Jesus says, beware of the the leaven of the Pharisees and and, and of Herod. 
If you know anything about these two group of people, you know they are diametrically opposed from one another. The Pharisees are like this uptight religious right community who's, they're like the, the, the goody two-shoes making sure that everybody's obeying the rules. And you've got Herod over here who lives this life of opulence, right? The, the, what, what Jesus is telling us is even though they value different things, even though they, 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 they go at life in a completely different way, that they're both missing God. They're both running away from God in different directions, if that makes any sense. See, what they share in common is their approach to life does not lead them to God and to joy. They're rejecting Jesus for different reasons, but the reality is both the Pharisees and Herod are rejecting Jesus. See, the Pharisees have determined that their morality, their way to God is ultimately going to be uh, uh, by them doing all these good things, and then God will bless them. Their reality is, I obey, and then God will accept me. That's going to be their meal ticket into the kingdom of heaven. And what happens to them is that they become self-righteous. Herod, he went the opposite way. He said, hey, man, let's just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Enjoy life now. Herod is the ultimate hedonist. Both of these approaches are self-focused, and they're running away from God. Their self-focus is the result of their hard-heartedness, and that's what Jesus is trying to teach them, that there's this hard-heartedness. It's this yeast that it's fermenting in their heart. And now Jesus is saying, I'm starting to see some of that creep into this boat right here. Jesus is saying, don't be so self-focused that you miss what's happening right now before your very eyes. And if yeast doesn't alarm you, this morning, let me up the stakes. I think if Jesus were saying that today, he would say it like this. Beware of the cancer of the Pharisees and of Herod. Like cancer gets our attention, right? Like yeast, we're like, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't. we're kind of anti-bread anyway, right? Cancer wakes us up. Cancer is nasty stuff, right? It comes without notice. And if you catch it early, your chances are generally good. But what happens if you don't catch it early? You're done. That's what Jesus is saying. Beware of the cancer that creeps into your heart. And his questions are piercing this morning. And we need to hear them. See, Jesus is patient with them, right? The Pharisees, they, he's kind of written them off. He's walked away. We don't see him have a whole lot more interaction with them. But he's patient with the disciples. He's going to ask these penetrating questions. He's asking the questions that get to their heart so they can cut out the cancer and let me tell you, friends, the colossal failure of this morning, as we're winding it down, would be to sit in the audience as mere observers. We got any television yellers in here? Like you're just yelling at the TV screen, like, how do you not see it, you know? It's like the, the, the people uh, on the show don't realize that the guy's like right behind them, and you're like, turn around, turn around, he's right there. The colossal failure would be if we're yelling at the TV screen this morning, looking at the disciples going, how do they not get it? Jesus is right there in front of them. How are they missing Jesus? Because the reality is, I'm just like him. I am just like him. I am just as insensitive and dull to God's word as the disciples were that day on the boat. We need to hear his questions. Do you not yet understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you not see him? Can you not hear him? 
Do you not remember all that he has done? In our hardness of hearts, instead of feasting at the table that Jesus provides, we constantly feast on other means of satisfaction. And so we feast on money. We believe money, man, that will give us the happiness and security that we need. And one of two things happens if you chase money. One is you'll never rest because you're always chasing that paper, right? How how much more do you need? Just $1 more. Always $1 more. Or what happens when you succeed? You get all the wealth that you were looking for. You ever talk to really wealthy people, celebrities, movie stars, the famous? They've got everything, influence, power, control, money. And every one of them has this look where they're looking into the camera just like, man, I just wish I could find happiness. And you're going, I wish I had your, you know, I wish I had your problems, right? Right? Because there's this reality in the world that there's some things money just can't buy. Or maybe for you, you're, you're drinking from the, uh, uh, from the dregs and from the, the well of relationships. It could be friends, could be family, could be spouse, children, whatever. When you try to make relationships satisfy your soul, what happens? You put a burden and a weight on other people that they were never meant to bear, and they crumble under the weight of it. And it leads to all kinds of nasty enmeshment. It leads to healthy codependence, and it's actually what leads to abuse. Here's another one. Our culture loves to feast on sex, doesn't it? Now, we are one of the most sex-driven, sex-craved cultures of all time. Do you know that the porn industry makes more money each year than all of the professional sports combined. We're feasting on pornography. That doesn't even get into the myriad of ways we deviate from God's good design for sexuality. You see, every human heart longs for satisfaction. Your desire for satisfaction is not wrong. It's just that we look for satisfaction in all the wrong places, passions, and people. Satisfaction for your soul is found in Jesus and in him alone. And that's not just for weak and needy people. That's for the strong and the weak. That's for the put together and the unkempt. That's for the get it rights and the never get it rights. Jesus is saying, don't you see me? Don't you hear me? I'm the one who can satisfy. Come to me. The cure for hard-heartedness is not trying harder or doing better. The cure for hard-heartedness is Jesus himself. So friend, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He's everything he says he is. And hear this truth as love for me this morning. You're worse. I'm worse than we're ever willing to admit or tell anyone. But it's him who can make you whole. It's him who can bring joy and satisfaction and cleansing to your hearts. When we feast on anything other than Jesus, we come to realize we're not actually feasting on anything that can satisfy. And we ultimately live in famine and we're malnourished. We don't miss Jesus because we have low IQs. We don't miss Jesus because we don't have all the information. See, it's not an intelligence thing. Jesus is saying you miss Jesus because it's a heart thing. We miss Jesus because we stare at him right in the face, and we look at him, and we decide to walk away. You see him for who he is, not some superhero, but when you really see Jesus, you see him as God himself, and you know that that has implications and demands on our life. That means he takes all of you or none of you, and it means you take all of him or none of him. When we walk away from Jesus and experience famine, it's because our hearts are hard. That's what's before us today, feast or famine. Jesus is the bread of life. 
The thing about bread is this. In order to eat it, what do you got to do to it? You've got to break it. You can't eat bread without breaking it. In each of the mass feedings, Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it. He does the same thing at the Last Supper with his disciples, and we're about to do the same thing here as we close our time. Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. My body will break so that your body will be nourished. I'll be torn to pieces so that you can be made whole. See, Jesus didn't come in wearing a cape like a superhero. He came wearing a cross, and he died in our place for our sins. He's our Savior. And when that leaven, when that yeast gets down into your soul, it'll change you from the inside out. Let me pray for us.